Well, amen. What a joy uh, to sing again with you. How I so desperately need that, not just to sing those words, but to hear you singing those words as well. It is such an encouragement to my own heart, and I trust to yours as well. And let me just add to Justin as we um, are looking forward to hopefully a week without rain so they could finish the parking lot. We're so excited for what they're doing out here in front and out here in the parking lot. And, you know, just to let you know, we're, we're thrilled beyond belief at what the Lord has done here at our church, the way that he's, he's worked in us spiritually, the ways that he's provided for us um, financially and physically. Um, I, I'm so grateful to Darren. Darren, just to let you know, brother, I heard from a brother this morning of how just outstanding this place looks, and a large part is your leadership and doing that for us, so we're thankful for that. And yeah, you can give Darren a, a hand. Go ahead. But in addition to that, I just want to let you know that what we had projected uh, for the, the whole total of the renovations and kind of sprucing up the campus, we still have a significant amount of money left over, which is a blessing. It was over a year ago that Nick and I, we began to kind of put a plan into place, and um, we're just excited that we have some money left over, and there's some things that we like to do as far as our children's ministry, providing a playground, potentially providing some fellowship area for us to um, just enjoy time with one another. And so there's a couple different things on the docket that you'll be hearing about soon, but we're just thrilled at how the Lord has provided for us. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, then please stick around after the service. I'd love to be able to do that. And again, for those of you that have not come to a, a membership class, we do have that today, and we'd love to have you participate and see what it means to become a member here at Grace Church Monterey Bay. Well, let me, um, let me begin our study this morning with asking you a question. Have you ever lost one of your children? I see a couple of nods. Don't be embarrassed. I think we've done that uh, on more than one occasion, more than we like to admit, whether that's at the supermarket or a shopping center. Even here at church, um, maybe you know what it's like to get in the car, to drive away, and then to recognize that you're missing a valuable piece of cargo in the back seats. I remember for us, it was uh, Titus's fifth birthday. We went uh, to the not-so-happiest place on Earth called Disneyland and super thrilled to jump on the Star Tours ride, and our kids were just kind of coming into their uh, appreciation of Star Wars. We were there with my mom and uh, having a great time, and I remember getting off that ride, and I spotted some stormtroopers. And I wanted to get some pictures with the kids and the stormtroopers. And so we rush on over to the stormtroopers, and I pull out my camera, and I'm taking these awesome photos of Kyla and Titus and the stormtroopers, and there's no Judah. And so I figured, well, Judah's probably with mom, and my mom was there with us, grandma, Nana. And so I take pictures, and then... Here comes Jess and Nana and a stroller with a backpack on it, but not Judah. And so when we finally met up, I said, where's Judah? And Jess said, what do you mean, where's Judah? Don't you have Judah? I said, I don't have Judah. 
And like that, in an instant, fear took over. Because there's thousands of people at Disneyland. It is busy that day, and our son is two years old. And we cannot find little Judah. And so I go into a panic, and everyone looks like a suspect. Everyone looks like they've taken my child. I am running all the way to the castle and all the way back looking for my son. I am terrified on the verge of tears. Jess is flipping out, and when I look over to Jess, she has now climbed up on the churro stand, and she's yelling at the top of her lungs, Judah! Judah! And people are saying, ma'am, get down, you can't do that. And she's like, no, I cannot find my son. People join us in the search. It was one of the most terrifying moments of our life. And it was maybe about 15 minutes, but it felt like an eternity. And here comes Judah on the top of some stranger's shoulders. A, A guy had the presence of mind to put him on his shoulders as they were looking for mom. And because Jess was crying out for Judah, we were actually able to be reunited with our son. But I remember that. I remember the pit in my stomach. I remember thinking the most unimaginable things. What if we never see him again? What if someone bad and evil has taken him? Maybe some of you have been there. This morning, we're going to a story in the scripture where a child is not lost for 30 minutes, but for three days. And this child is the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. And both Mary and Joseph have misplaced the Messiah. And so would you please stand with me? Let's read this text together. Follow me along on your copy of the scriptures, Luke chapter 2, and I'll read from 39 through 52, the end of the chapter. Here's God's word for us. And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Now, the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he had become 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them 
and his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and men. You may have a seat. And please join me as we pray and ask the Lord for his blessing on our study. Oh, Father, we recognize that apart from your spirit and apart from your direction, apart from you enlightening this word, um, we will not be able to comprehend, not be able to understand, not be able to respond in faith and gratitude. So would you please come in a special way this morning to open up our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far we've looked at the birth narrative in the first two chapters of Luke, and what we found is that God is sovereignly and providentially carrying out his perfect plan, and that plan was to make it clear that that baby that we were introduced to in the first two chapters, and now the boy that we're introduced to here, God is making it clear that he's the one. He's the one. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is prophesied about. He's the one that's promised. He is now here for the people of God, and he's come to bring salvation, and he's come to bring redemption, and he's come to bring restoration for the people of God. And so far, this has been attested to over and over again. We saw that with the angel Gabriel. And then there is Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's even John in the womb giving attestation to Jesus and his identity. There's the heavenly host of angels who are singing God's praise. There's Mary and Joseph. There's Simeon and Anna. So up to this point, we've heard testimony after testimony, but now here in our text this morning, we get a testimony from Jesus himself. This text, it sticks out among all the other portions of Scripture, and it does that for a couple reasons. First of all, what we have here are the very first and only recorded words of Jesus before he launches into public ministry. That is significant. But secondly, this is the only incident in Jesus' childhood that is recorded for us in the four Gospels. Now, you've heard me mention about these Gnostic Gospels, these false Gospels. You know that many have imagined what it would be like for Jesus to be a kid. And so there was the creation of all these fanciful stories of Jesus as a young boy. But Again, this is the only incident in Scripture that has been recorded for us between Jesus' infancy and his start in ministry when he's 30 years old, right here, 12 years of age. And I realize you can go and read those false gospels. They're really trying to fill in the gaps of Jesus' childhood. So you've got quite a bit of fantasy and fiction, and I guess if you're into false accounts, then Go ahead and read those things. You can read the Gospel of Thomas, the Arabic infancy gospel. But I want you to understand that each of those gospels don't portray the right Jesus. What we see in those are some sort of sullen, supernatural miracle worker who's doing all of these things to kind of get a rise out of people, amuse people with his power, and... I would just say that those are very unbiblical. They're dangerous. They might be entertaining, but they're certainly not edifying. If you want to know about Jesus, what he was like as a child, 
This is it. It's right here. Just one single incident, and yet it has enormous implications. You see, God in his infinite wisdom, he provided this one story in Jesus' childhood, and it's an account that demonstrates that Jesus knows exactly who he is. And not only does he know exactly who he is, but he knows exactly why he came to this earth. That's a great reminder for us. Because I think sometimes we want our curiosity to be satisfied when in reality God has given us what he's given us in the inspired canon of Scripture for our character and our conduct to match that of Christ. So here's our main idea if you're taking notes. As the unique Son of God, Jesus is unequivocally committed to accomplishing his Father's mission. Let me say that again. As the unique Son of God, Jesus is unequivocally committed to accomplishing his Father's mission. And now we take that main idea and we have to say, so what? What does that mean for us? Well, for you, if you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, then you too should be about the Father's business. So here's our outline just to kind of guide us as we work through the text. There's four major headings. We're first going to look at the Son's development, and we'll see that there's these two bookends, and it's all about Jesus' development. It's kind of like the two pieces of the sandwich in verses 39 through 40, and then at the end, verse 52, then we'll look at the parents' distress in 41 through 45. We'll look at the son's deity there in 46 through 49. And then we'll finish our time with the son's deference in verses 50 through 51. His developments, his parents' distress, his deity, and his deference. Let's jump into our first point, the son's development. Now, it's very interesting to note that from verse 38 to 39, there is a gap of several years. And that's intentional. Luke intended to do that. And at the end of verse 38, what we see is Jesus is an infant in the temple. And remember from last week, Anna is there. Simeon is there. And Simeon has Jesus holding him up, praising God because salvation has come. Redemption has come. And Anna is pointing everyone else to Jesus, recognizing that in the arms of Simeon, he's holding up the one that was prophesied, a light to the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. So all attention is on Jesus in the temple. And then we read this summary statement there in verse 39. It says, And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And that's Luke's gospel. But if we're trying to harmonize, we recognize that there's quite a bit that happened that's not recorded here in Luke. And again, that's intentional. But we think about, well, what was happening during that time? And for that, you need to go to Matthew chapter 2. Because Matthew chapter 2 fills in those gaps for us. And what we learn is that in Matthew chapter 2, there's the arrival of the wise men, the acknowledgement, the bowing down, the worshiping, the offering gifts to Christ. There's also a dream that Joseph has, a warning to 
this couple that they need to get out of there because Herod, like a madman, jealous for his own glory, is not going to share his throne. And so when he hears that the king of the Jews is born, he steps into action and he orders for all male children two years and younger to be killed. And so Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus escape down to Egypt. And when Herod had finally died, they return back to the district of Galilee and to his hometown of Nazareth. And so we get to verse 40 of Luke chapter 2, and we read this, continuing the story. Now, the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so again, if we're just looking at a timeline from verse 39 to verse 40, that covers the first 12 years of Jesus' life. And then when you skip down to verse 52, look there at 52 in your text, that covers the next 18 years of Jesus' life. Because we see him at 12, but then we don't see him again until he is 30 years old and begins his public ministry. This is what verse 52 of chapter 2 says in Luke, and Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And if you look at those two statements, you say, well, there's a lot of similarity there. And again, Luke does that intentionally. He wants us to understand that Jesus, after three decades, he grew up. He matured. He goes from a baby to a boy to a man, just like every other man, with one exception. He is without sin. But there's really nothing extraordinary about Jesus' development. He, he grew up like any other boy in Galilee or Nazareth would. He had growing pains. He had growth spurts. Jesus went through puberty. The, the point here that Luke is making is that every day he continued to grow and grow and grow. But he grew the way that you and I were supposed to grow. You see, as the new Adam, he's not impacted by sin. And so the way that Jesus grows up is unique and special. Look at what it says here in verse 40 that he grew, it says, strong. He developed not just physically, but mentally. It says they're being filled with wisdom. And this wisdom here is not just talking about his mental abilities, but with his skill and his ability. Just imagine what it would be like to not be tainted by sin. Imagine how sweet it would be every time to come to the scriptures and never misinterpret or misunderstand something. Imagine what it would be like to sit in a sermon like Jesus did, mind you, week after week in the synagogue and able to discern truth and error and be able to make all the necessary connections. That is Jesus. Yes, he's growing, but he has no sin impeding his growth. And he just didn't grow in wisdom. It says he's filled with wisdom. You think about young kids who are influenced by culture and media and bad influences. Not Jesus. Jesus never gave way to those inclinations. 
And so we read here, he developed spiritually as well. Look at verse 40 again, and the grace of God was upon him. You know, R.C. Sproul said, Jesus, he continued to grow, not as we do sometimes, from sinfulness to obedience, but R.C. says he moved from faith to faith, from grace to grace, from strength to strength, from obedience to higher levels of obedience. Because as he increased in his understanding and knowledge of what God had called him to do, he had a greater capacity for deeper levels of obedience. I think sometimes we look at those three years of Christ's faithfulness. We praise God for that. But there was a whole lifetime of obedience that we need to praise Jesus for. So simply stated, Jesus, he grew. He grew perfectly at every stage of life, physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Jesus grew. And as he neared closer and closer to adulthood, it wasn't just his own personal growth, but it was his relational growth that's interesting in this text. You see, in those early years, it was typical for a boy to have quite a bit of mommy time. But, but at some point, that changes. And as they get nearer and nearer to adulthood, the, the father, the, the male in the home, begins to have more influence on that child. You see, Joseph would have took it upon himself to prepare Jesus very intentionally for manhood. And according to the Jewish rabbis, it was incumbent upon the father to really become intentional when a child, the son, was 10, 11, 12 years old. And so the investment is shot up when it comes to Jesus' spiritual investment from Joseph. A dad would want his son to be prepared to be a fully functional member of the religious community within Judaism. And this leads us now to the parents' distress there in verse 41. But before we get into those details, it's important to recognize that Luke is continuing to present before us just how godly Joseph and Mary are. Look there at verse 41. It says, And his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And the first two chapters have presented both Mary and Joseph as a godly couple. But they're not just godly people. They're godly parents. They're obeying everything God set down in the law. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. They're naming him according to what the angel told them to name him. They're they're dedicating him, presenting him in the temple They are consistently worshiping, and one of the indications we have of their faithfulness is that they're going every single year to the Passover. Now, this annual trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it's significant. And, of course, it's significant for a number of reasons. One, they don't have the transportation we do, and so they're walking. But it is a long trip which even speaks higher of their faithfulness and and godliness. They were obedient. They were sacrificial. We don't see them making mistakes. Let me just give you a little geography here to help you understand what's going on. If they were to take the shortest route from their home in Nazareth down to Jerusalem, they would have just shot straight south. And they could have done that. That route would have crossed the Jezreel Valley, which Jess and I had the privilege of going and and taking these routes, 
They would have followed the ridge southward toward Jerusalem, and in total it would have covered about 70 miles. So just think about all of us getting up and then walking to San Jose. Okay? But there's a problem here. Because if they take the quickest and most direct route, they're going to run into some people that they're not really vibing with called the Samaritans. And so intentionally, they would avoid that and they would go off track and they would move their way eastward toward the Jordan to avoid Samaria. You say, well, why would they avoid the Samaritans? Well, because these were the half-breeds in their mind. And they would worship on Mount Gerizim. But the Jews, very intent on making it to Passover without being polluted and without being defiled, they would avoid them altogether. And so they would tack on an extra 20, 25 miles. And we know that that road that is traveled was a road that Luke will tell us later on in Luke chapter 10, where the Good Samaritan comes to the aid of someone who was hijacked on that road. So it's not a very safe thing to do. It is a long journey. And here we learn that Joseph and Mary are faithful to do this every year. And again, I want you to look there at the text because this second point is also significant. Joseph didn't do this alone. It wasn't required for the women to go with the husbands. But what we see here is Luke intentionally tells us they went up according to their custom, which means Mary is right by her husband's side. Husband and wife going to worship together. This is a mutual thing, an encouraging thing, a blessed thing. Again, Exodus 23 says women were not required to go, but this speaks of Mary's godliness because she wants to be right next to her husband to go and offer worship. So you begin to calculate all these things. It is a long journey. There's a large cost. There's potential danger. Mom and dad are going every single year, and it could be that they were taking their kids along with them. At this point, Jesus would have had siblings, both brothers and sisters. And so we all know what it's like to travel with a bunch of kids. It's not the easiest thing, and that's with the minivan. Imagine having to walk with your whole family. Again, this just speaks of their dedication and devotion. Now look there at verse 42. It says, And when he became 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the feast, and as they were returning after finishing the days of the feast. Now, it's important to note this, that Passover was just one day. Okay, well, It was a one-day feast, a one-day meal, a one-day commemoration, but it was immediately followed by what is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So all Jewish males who were of age were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Passover is one of them. But look here at Deuteronomy 16, 16. It says this, Three times in a year all your males shall appear before Yahweh your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and at the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booze, and they shall not appear before Yahweh empty-handed." And so while they were required to go, they weren't necessarily required to stay the whole time. But the text here tells us, again, pointing to their godliness, that they're there for the whole duration. Luke is leaving no doubt in our minds that Jesus' parents were fastidious. They were committed. They were faithful to obeying God's 
word. And the young Jesus is following in his parents' footsteps. But what's going to become more evident as we look at this text is that while Jesus is obedient to Joseph and Mary, he's actually following in the footsteps of a higher authority. Keep that in mind. Now, how old again is Jesus here? The text says, verse 42, that he's 12 years old. You say, well, what is significant about that? Do you guys know when Jewish boys have their bar mitzvah? 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. I thought it was 12 years old because of this story. The, the reality is that the Mishnah, which is just a compilation of documents that preserve the oral law, it said that at age 12, a Jewish boy needs to familiarize himself with what's coming at the bar mitzvah. So at 13 years of age, bar, son, mitzvah of the commandment, son of the commandment, a boy becomes a man. He, he now becomes under the commandment, obeys the commandment, and is a full-fledged citizen in the religious community. I don't know why, maybe because girls are more mature than guys, but for girls, it was at age 12, bat mitzvah. But here Jesus is, one year before his bar mitzvah, and he is going down to the feast with his dad. Now, this detail is important because Luke is helping us to understand that Jesus is continuing to fulfill prophecy. He fulfills prophecy in the womb. He fulfills prophecy in the where and when he's born. He fulfills prophecy as an infant and as a boy. He is a human through and through. And one of the prophecies that he fulfills is he is coming under the law. He is doing everything that a Jewish boy is supposed to be doing. And all these deal, details are also significant because of all the years, of all the years in which Joseph would have taken great pains to explain what's coming ahead at Passover, this is the year. At age 12, Joseph would have taken Jesus under his wing and educated him what to expect, how to do things, he would try to visualize for him what Jesus had coming before him at the Passover. So they would have been walking together, talking together. Joseph would have been teaching. All of that is extremely important. This journey of the Savior with his parents to Jerusalem is not just a casual event. This is a very solemn occasion and it adds to the weight of what happens next. Look there at verse 43. They lose their son. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. They probably had a great time. They're on their way back. And they realize Jesus is not with us. And I know for some of you, a little skeptical, you say, how is that even possible? Well, it's answered in the next verse. Look at it, verse 44. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey and they began searching for him 
among their relatives and acquaintances. They go a whole day's journey. If we're walking up to San Jose, we take a little rest, a little pit stop in Santa Cruz, and we recognize, wait a second, he's not here. Now, again, they traveled in big caravans. That was the safest way to travel. The more the number, the more protection they have against thieves as they travel. The way this works is the men would have sent the women and the children on ahead, maybe because they're a little bit slower. And so the women and children are ahead. But remember, Jesus is in that in-between stage. Is he with mommy or is he with dad? Joseph thinks that Jesus is with Mary. Mary thinks that Jesus is with Joseph. If they aren't with mom or dad, then he's certainly with friends and relatives. But that's not the case. So, just like at Disneyland, almost the exact same scene. They stop. Joseph comes to Mary. Hey, sweetie, how was the walk? It's great. Um, Where's Jesus? What do you mean, where's Jesus? I thought you had Jesus. I don't have Jesus. I I thought you had Jesus. And you see how this plays out. And then they go and start to question all of their family and friends. No one has seen Jesus. And again, you, if you've been there, you know the fear that grips you in that moment. Some of you know the adrenaline that rushes to your heart when a child goes missing. Your anxiety begins to climb. You know, <clears throat> nowadays, I think we're terrified of one of our kids getting abducted. There's all kinds of weirdos and pedophiles out there. During that time, it's the same thing. You lose a kid, they can be sold into slavery, and you never see them again. Feel that. Feel that weight. The drama that's unfolding here, they go into full frantic mode, and they're determined to trace their steps. Now, depending on what time they found this out, they're not going to travel at night by themselves, and so they might have to sleep on it before they head back to try to recover Jesus. Well, it says here, finally, they find him. Where is he? He's in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of Jesus' relationship to Jerusalem and the temple, but Luke intentionally tells us here that he's in the temple because the temple plays such a major role. The last time we saw him, he's a baby in the temple. He's a temple here at age 12. If you fast forward all the way to the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is near the temple in Jerusalem, revealing himself to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. All that to say is that while Jesus could have easily just went back home to Nazareth, into the synagogue, and had all these Q&As, he doesn't. He's at the temple And that holds great significance. You say, well, what is his mission? Why is he there? We've seen the son's development, the parents' distress. Now, let's take a look at the son's deity. Verse 46. And it happened that after three days they found him. Now, I read a few commentaries that said that it wasn't actually three days, it was Five days. You do the math. One day they figured out we don't have him. One day to travel back. Now, if it's a total of three days, they would have found him on the third day. But some have suggested that 
They went, don't have him, that's one day. They go back, that's two days, and then three days of looking for him. I'm not sure that they went right to the temple. They're probably looking all over in Jerusalem for their son. But whether you take five days or three days, just 30 minutes away from your child is nerve-wracking. His parents are overwhelmed with worry, but not Jesus. The text says they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And some would suggest that Jesus is displaying his teachability and his humility, coming in and and learning from the rabbis, and maybe there's some truth to that. However, look at what it says in verse 47. It says, all who heard him were what? Astounded at his understanding and his answers. What is the response to Jesus sitting there in the temple? They're they're not astounded necessarily at the questions that he's asking. They're, They're not astonished at his teachability, although they might be, but they're astounded and astonished at his understanding. You see, it's impressive to ask hard questions. It's even more impressive to have the answers to those questions. I think Jesus here at age 12 is just blowing their socks off. And that's actually what the text says. This word, exitomy, literally means they're standing outside themselves. You know, when we witness something amazing, we get a little jolt. This is so awe-inspiring for the people at the temple that it actually displaces them. It, It moves them. And Luke's use of the vivid imperfect tense communicates that this was ongoing. It wasn't just one amazing answer that Jesus gave. It's everything that came out of his mouth was staggering to the Jewish leaders. And keep in mind here, who's there during the time of the Passover? It's the best of the best. It's the smartest, the wisest, the most mature, the most godly, the most apt when it comes to the scriptures. They've traveled from all around the world to be here in Jerusalem. And here, this 12-year-old boy is breaking down the scripture like they've never heard before. His wisdom, his knowledge far surpasses any of the scholars during that time. And Luke will highlight this throughout his gospel. Later on in John chapter 7 and verse 15, we read this. The Jews then were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned, not having been educated? Well, little did they know. He wrote the book. But not only are they stunned in the temple, but Jesus' parents are equally stunned. The word used there for their reaction in verse 48, it says there, when they, that is his parents, saw him, they were astonished. Ek pleso. It's a very strong word, which literally means to strike out or to drive out of one's senses. So modern nomenclature, their minds were blown. Well, how does Mary respond to Jesus? Look there at verse 48. 
And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, Mary's question here is interesting because it seems like she's trying to make the perfect boy Jesus feel guilty. But maybe it's just genuine confusion. Jesus, did you, did you do this to us on purpose? But look at her next statement. It actually intensifies her question. She says, Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. She wants him to know the kind of pain that she's been in these last couple of days. That word literally means to be pained, to be grieved, to be distressed. There's a physical element to her anxiety that she's been feeling. And that word there, searching, it's also in the imperfect tense, meaning that this has been going on for three days. Do you have any idea of what you put us through, Jesus? But she's not done. Look at what else she says. She speaks on Joseph's behalf, verse 48. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. This is typical mom stuff right here. Moms, have you ever used this one? Wait till your father gets home? And, you know, the interesting thing is it's not Abba, it's not your daddy. No, it's Pater. Wait till your father hears about this. Or Do you know what you put me and your father through? Just adding a little extra weight And you know why this was difficult for Mary? It's because it was unusual. It was not like Jesus. All that Mary knew, and remember, she has comparisons because there's other kids at home. All Mary knew was perfect obedience, perfect respect, perfect submission, perfect attitude. Jesus never disobeyed one time, never threw a temper tantrum, even once, never spoke disrespectfully to mom. So Mary is confused. Why did you do this? And that's a question we have to wrestle with. Was Jesus actually breaking the fifth commandment? And the answer is no. He was not dishonoring his parents. You say, well, what exactly was Jesus doing? He was obeying his father. And here the contrast comes out. Because he does have an allegiance. He does need to obey his earthly parents. But there is one that supersedes that. There is one who deserves more honor, more respect, more attention. And that is his father. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. And look Here at verse 49, the very first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel. And he said to them, why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus answers Mary's question with two of his own questions. Why is it that you're searching for me? Some say that this is a gentle rebuke. It might be, but I tend to think it's a genuine question. Mary Joseph, why? 
You knew where I would be. Have you quickly forgotten what the angels told you? What, what Zachariah and Elizabeth told you? What Simeon and Anna told you? There was no need for you to fret, no need for you to be worried sick. You knew that I had to be in my father's house, fulfilling his will, accomplishing his mission. And here at age 12, he's just getting started. And the first question, it sets up the second question. Look at it there. It says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Again, we understand this as a reference to the temple but literally, Jesus says, did you not know that I had to be in the things of my Father? In other words, what Jesus is saying is that this, this mission, this purpose in his mission, his purpose in life is to accomplish the work that God sent him to do. Mary's desire was that Jesus would be obedient to her, his earthly father. And Jesus says, no, my primary allegiance is to my heavenly Father. Listen, church, we don't need fanciful stories of Jesus performing miracles as a child. We have all we need right here, this single recorded event, Jesus as a boy during Passover in the temple, obeying his Father. That's all we need. And what we need to do is we need to contemplate what it was like for Jesus to be in the temple at Passover at this time. As he's understanding and growing in his knowledge of what this all means. Because what's happening during the time of the Passover? The meal is commemorating God's saving, redemptive work in the Exodus. There is an oppressor who wants nothing more than to wipe out all the Jews, but God provides a provision. And it comes in the sheep. And during the time of Passover, there would have been thousands and thousands of people and lots and lots of bleeding sheep, and there would have been lots of blood spilled. And Jesus, at 12 years old, is recognizing that all of what the Scriptures taught and all that's been revealed was ultimately pointing to him. That 20 years down the line, that he would be the lamb that was brought to the slaughter. That he would give up his life. That his blood would be spilled. That the only way redemption and salvation and reconciliation would come is if he would willingly lay down his life. Oh, the significance of this one moment. A 12-year-old in the temple, hearing the sounds, smelling the smells, seeing the people, recognizing that what they are doing will never take away sins. It had to be his own blood. And so what we see is a recognition Divine sonship, divine business, divine inevitability. Jesus says, I had to be about my father's business. And just so you're clear, no one talked like that. Nobody did. John chapter 5 and verse 17, we read this. 
But he answered them, he said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, what Jesus is communicating with these words is like father, like son. My father sent me here. He sent me here on mission, and I am going to fulfill that mission. I am going to lay down my life for sinners. Jesus has a father, Joseph, yes, but he has a divine father, Yahweh. Jesus has a mission, and at 12 years old, he already understands the nature, the particulars of what has to happen. And just to help you understand this even more, look at the word there. It says, I had to be. That Greek word, day, it's important. It means necessary. It's a term Luke often uses to show the resolve of Christ. As you trace that one word throughout Luke's gospel, we encounter some pretty amazing things. And here they are. Look at Luke 4.43. Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Luke 13.33, nevertheless, I must Journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it is not possible that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. He's saying, I have to go to Jerusalem and die. Luke 17, 25, but first he, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus, even at age 12, knew that his message would not be accepted, that he would be objected, that he would be opposed, that he would be hated. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. for I tell you, that which is written must be completed in me. And listen to what was written. He was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its completion. Jesus knew that all of this was already predetermined by God. Luke 24, 7, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into glory? 12 years old, he knows he's got to die. Luke 24, verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. If there's one thing that's clear, it's that this 12-year-old boy understood exactly why he came to this earth, which makes the next two verses even more remarkable. The son's development, the parent's distress, the son's deity, now the son's deference. And deference just simply means humble submission. Look there at verse 50. But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. 
All this revelation, but they're still confused. See, because they thought Jesus' highest obligation was to them, when in reality, his highest priority was to the Father. Jesus is saying here, look, I have a relationship with God that transcends my relationship with you, mom and dad. I know who my true Father is, and my obedience and allegiance to him to carry out his mission is paramount. And then in verse 51, it says, And he went with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. He didn't go off on his own. He, was, he wasn't a free spirit. See, God doesn't give you children commands that are in conflict with what your parents are commanding you. And if it is in conflict, you obey God rather than man. Jesus willfully, joyfully goes and submits to his earthly parents until it's time for him to launch into his public ministry. And we hear the statement once again, verse 51, and his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. She has a mental scrapbook of all these memories that she is going to divulge to Luke. And here it is in Luke chapter 2 for you and me. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that Jesus knew exactly who he was? Exactly what he came to do? Twelve years old, he knows. The sacrifices, the festivals, the rituals, the temple, it all points to me. And the question for you this morning is, do you know what your mission is? Are you in tune with your identity as a child of God? God has given you very clear directions. It's not fuzzy. It's very clear. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. All authority has been given over to Jesus, and he has called you to fulfill his Mission. Or you can go to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so God's question to you is just this. Are you walking in good works or are you wasting your life with trivial things? Jesus he sets the perfect example for us at age 12. And the beautiful thing is that it's at every stage of life. As a helpless babe, as a dependent child, as an independent and responsible man, Jesus willingly, knowingly humbled himself and became a slave. And he served you and me Every time we're tempted to think that Jesus is unaware of what we're going through, the kind of pain we're in, the kind of trauma we've experienced, the kind of abuse that we've endured, just walk through his resume. Born to a poor, unwed mother and a common carpenter, born in a feeding trough, he had his life threatened as a baby, he had to take refuge in a foreign country, he was raised in a despicable place called Nazareth. His father probably died when he was young. 
As the oldest son, he had to support and take care of his mom and his siblings. He had no home, not even a place to lay his head. He was hated and opposed by the religious elite. He was charged with being insane. He was accused of having a demon. He was rejected, hated, and opposed by the crowds. He was ridiculed by his own family. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was left alone, rejected, and forsaken by his disciples. He was falsely accused. He was tried for treason. He was stripped naked. He was spit upon. He was beaten. And he was hung on a cross. And he did that for you and for me. Oh, how I, I just wish, just wish we can keep that in our heads. That when we're tempted to sin and tempted to disobey, we would remember his resolve to go to the cross for our sake. Let's pray. Oh, the depth, the humiliation, that Christ, that you would step so low and experience every human emotion and condition in order to become the perfect sympathizer and to be our Savior. Oh, Jesus, we owe you our very lives. You have done more than we can imagine, more than we'll ever be able to understand. And God, the reason why we have an eternity is so that we can praise you. And we won't cease to praise you. And we long to praise you and long to be out of these bodies that are so rotten and filled with sin. Oh God, would you please use your word to refine us, to help us mortify those things that would cause division and separation and fellowship with you. Father, help us to say no to the world, yes to holiness, yes to godliness. Help us, God, to abide in our Savior. Jesus, we love you, and we're thankful for your sacrifice. Please help us to bask in it even more, we pray in your precious name. Amen.